You are listening to National Security Law Today. Wars blazing in faraway places, a threat from global expansion directed by Moscow, and internal American divisions. These are the issues whipsawing Americans at this moment. The fear of foreign threats and incursions are very real today. In the 1960s and 1970s, there was government surveillance without the benefit of a warrant. But this was conducted on persons within the United States who were Americans. Nevertheless, it seemed like a solution at the time to people in federal law enforcement and intelligence, the result of which was not so good. It resulted in the Pike and Church commissions and a different approach to the way that the FBI and the intelligence community did their business. Now, as Congress considers the reauthorization of 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which we're going to call FISA, many in the privacy and civil liberties community are suggesting that the brakes be pressed. Now, others in the intelligence community are suggesting that any comparison to what happened in the 1960s and 1970s is a false equivalency intended to conjure up memories of the wiretapping of Martin Luther King Jr., which wounded and hurts Americans of color even today. But we're going to talk about 702 tonight on National Security Law Today the podcast of the ABA's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And my guest tonight is a towering figure in the civil liberties community, Liza Goitin, who has spent nearly her entire career examining intelligence authorities and their impact on the rights of Americans. She is the director of the Brennan Center for Justice's Liberty and National Security Program, And you've likely seen Liza in one of her appearances on MSNBC or CNN, or you've heard her voice on NPR, or you've read some of her pieces for national newspapers, such as the New York Times or the Washington Post. She recently authored a piece in Foreign Affairs, which is entitled The Coming Fight Over American Surveillance. What's at stake as Congress considers FISA reform? Liza, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, Elisa. I'm really pleased to be here. FISA Section 702 allows the U.S. government to conduct what is called targeted surveillance of foreign persons located outside of the United States. And it allows for the compulsion of U.S. providers of, you know, electronic communications. What you're thinking of is probably Google, telecoms. And it allows the intelligence community to ask these providers to give over foreign intelligence information. Looking at it that way, how could it be controversial to get information on foreigners who have no constitutional rights in the United States? It's true that foreigners abroad have no constitutional rights in the United States. There is nonetheless some controversy over the scope of the surveillance permitted by Section 702. The law allows the government to target really almost any foreigner overseas. There's no requirement that the target either pose a threat to the United States or even have some information about a threat. That creates problems, not just for foreigners, but for Americans in a few ways. EU law prohibits European companies from transferring EU citizens' data to U.S. companies unless the U.S. companies can protect the privacy of the data. European courts have now twice 
struck down the agreement between the, the U.S. and the EU that governs these data transfers because Section 702 makes it too easy for the U.S. government to access the communications of EU citizens who have done nothing wrong. And there are 5,000 U.S. companies that rely on this agreement to do business overseas. Uh, so in short, the, the unnecessarily broad scope of Section 702 is actually creating some real economic and legal headaches for U.S. companies. The main reason why Section 702 is controversial, though, is its impact on Americans' privacy. Even though the government can only target foreigners overbroad, the surveillance inevitably sweeps in Americans' communications because Americans communicate with foreigners. The government refers to this as incidental collection. But that term incidental creates a misleading impression that this is a rare or not particularly significant phenomenon. We don't know exactly how many Americans' communications are picked up because the government won't tell us. Lawmakers have been trying for over a decade to get the government to provide a rough estimate of that number. The Obama administration promised to provide an estimate, and then the Trump administration reneged on that promise. And the Biden administration appears to be sticking with the Trump administration's line on this one. But what we do know is that the government has collected literally billions of communications under 702. It collects several hundred million communications each year. We know that. And given the prevalence of international communication, it's safe to say, conservatively, that the 702 program has picked up millions of Americans' communications. Okay, but these communications that might be picked up, they're not residing in the IC. They're residing, for the most part, in these private companies who would otherwise keep these records. Is that right or wrong? Well, they're residing with those companies until the government serves an order under Section 702. And then it collects all of the communications, all of the information of the foreign targets, including their communications with Americans. So what you're looking at is the, and, and I want to focus you a little bit because I have read your piece and like everything you write, it's extremely good and very persuasive. When I read it, I see that what concerns you the most is the process of this query and the idea that these queries can occur with, I think, what you characterize as a process that you believe is unfair. Would that be a good way to focus it? Yes, I think that is a good way to focus in on, on the crux of the issue here. So as I mentioned, 702 surveillance results in the incidental collection of Americans' communications in extremely large numbers. If the government's intent were to spy on those Americans, it would have to get a warrant in a criminal investigation or a FISA Title I order in a foreign intelligence investigation. And that's, as you know, Elisa, that's an order that the FISA court issues if the government can show probable cause that the American is acting as an agent of a foreign power. So to prevent the government from using 702 as an end run around those constitutional and statutory requirements, Congress did two things. First, it required the government to, quote, minimize the retention and use of this incidentally acquired information. And second, it required the government to certify to the FISA court on an annual basis that its intent is not to spy on the Americans. Despite these requirements, all of the agencies that receive 702 data, that's the NSA, the CIA, the National Counterterrorism Center, and the FBI, 
have procedures in place allowing them to search through the data for the communications of Americans. And this is what the government calls U.S. person queries. So having certified that they're targeting only foreigners and therefore don't need to get a warrant, as soon as the data is in their possession, the agencies start rummaging through it, looking for Americans' information. And this is a bait and switch that drives a truck through the protections of the Fourth Amendment. In 2022 alone, the FBI conducted 200,000 of these factor searches. That's a staggering number. I mean, it amounts to more than 500 warrantless searches for Americans' communications every day. And that just leaves no doubt that an authority that was meant to target only foreigners abroad has become a very powerful domestic spying tool. Okay, but I think if you've taken a look, and I know you have, uh, what the DNI says, when you say U.S. persons, I think a lot of people listening to this would think individuals. But in fact, a lot of these could be companies, and this has a lot to do with international attacks, cyber attacks. And one of the things that they're able to do through this query process is identify that hospital or that company where there has been a targeted attack from a hacker group abroad or a foreign government, even worse. And we've seen some massive attacks from foreign governments attributable to China and Russia. They're saying some of these queries that you're lumping in with this 200,000 have everything to do with identifying the victim of an attack. And these could include things like financial institutions, companies with sensitive data holdings, And so would you say it's fair to say that in this 200K in 2022, we don't know or you don't know how many of those are actual individuals versus companies, or is there some sort of breakdown that makes that clear? No, unfortunately, we have gotten very, very little information about the nature of these queries. Uh, we, We get pretty much the bare minimum of the information from the government reports. And then you can read between the lines of the FISA court opinions that are issued. Certainly the abuses, the many abuses, which I'm sure we'll talk about soon, have involved individuals. You know, how many of these relate to corporations? I don't know. Corporations do have Fourth Amendment rights under the Constitution. And even though we have certainly heard a lot from the administration about the use of U.S. person queries to protect Americans by identifying potential victims of various foreign activities. You know, these so-called defensive queries never even came up in 2017, even though there was extensive debate about backdoor searches. So I think there is a real question as to how significant a part of the picture these defensive queries really are. But in any event, I think it's important to emphasize the need to protect victims is hardly unique to the Section 702 context. Domestic law enforcement agencies are faced with this task every day, and they manage to keep the American public safe using techniques that comport with the Fourth Amendment. Now, those techniques can include getting a warrant. So if the government has probable cause of criminal activity, that probable cause finding can support searches of a potential victim's communications as well as those of the suspect. Law enforcement officials can also get a potential victim's consent. The administration says it used backdoor searches to help recover ransoms paid in the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack. If I had paid millions of dollars in ransom money and the government asked if it could help me get that money back, I would say yes. So the point is, there is no victim exception to the Fourth Amendment. And there's a good reason for that. 
regardless of the government's motive in conducting a search, the result is to expose an American's sensitive information to government scrutiny with all of the potential for abuse that such access entails. And the line between victim and suspect, particularly when it comes to things like foreign influence or, or foreign efforts to recruit spies, that can be very murky. And throughout the period you were talking about, the early days of the Cold War, the 1960s, the FBI was spying on anti-war protesters and racial justice activists, uh, including Martin Luther King Jr., as you said, on the ostensible grounds that they had been targeted and potentially infiltrated by foreign communists. Uh, and we've seen this much more recently, too, that claims of potential foreign influence have been used to justify government monitoring of Muslim American communities and the movement for Black lives. So in short, the notion that the government needs warrantless access to your communications to protect you really does need to be viewed with a skeptical eye. But would it be helpful, it, assuming there's an audit trail and there would have to be for them to provide this kind of data and to know some of the details that have been disclosed, do you think at bare minimum parsing what is an individual versus a company might be helpful? Understanding the companies have Fourth Amendment rights, but they also have boards, they have shareholders. And if it's a financial institution and their data or sensitive data is about to be exfiltrated and they could write against something or receive an alert about, you know, business email compromise, for example. I mean, these things would want to be known, I think, by businesses as a practical matter. And with, exactly. respect, to the, exactly. with respect to their Fourth Amendment rights, let me say that the constitutional protections are against unreasonable searches. And in a situation in which our businesses are being attacked every day, do you believe that parsing these two things and providing that kind of data might help people like yourself who study this kind of thing get a better picture about whether this problem is as serious as numbers like 200,000 make it appear, or perhaps a little bit more like trying to locate who's been hacked. Would that be helpful to somebody like you? Absolutely. Like more information is always better. I, it would be very helpful to know what percentage of these queries are, in fact, quote unquote, defensive searches. I don't think that changes the constitutional analysis. I don't think that changes what needs to be happen, what needs to happen in terms of reforms. I do think it would be useful information. But I'm going to go back to something you just said, which is that companies would want to know about this if they were potentially the victims of a cyber attack. That is exactly why the government can get consent from a company in those situations. A company is going to want to know. And so if the FBI reaches out to the company and says, look, we're concerned, you might actually be the victim of a very serious cyber attack where your sensitive data that you are in possession of could be compromised, any company that's being responsible to its shareholders is going to say, yes, go ahead, run whatever query you need to run to try to make sure that doesn't happen. And so that's one reason why the reforms that are being proposed here, which I'm sure we'll get to, which involve getting a warrant for these U.S. person queries, are not going to create some kind of insurmountable problem in the scenario that you're envisioning. OK, and I think the FBI would push back and say you'd be shocked at how uncooperative companies can be when they realize they've been hacked because of the potential reputational damage that they believe they could incur. But that said, let's move on. You know, obviously, you have a gift for writing and you write beautifully and you have analogized some of this to the foreign incursion into institutions like the weather underground and so on. I do think the distinction here is under 702. Tell me if you would agree 
Under 702, the target has to be a foreign person who is under the power or is being directed by a foreign government or a foreign power, and they're outside of this country. When you look at something like the weather underground, somebody like Martin Luther King, and you said that there was some basis that they were being infiltrated, but they were the targets of the wiretaps. They were the ones being recorded. It wasn't a process where they were recording somebody overseas and trying to figure out who that person was seeking to influence or work with. Is that fair? It's a little off in one sense, which is that obviously U.S. persons are the targets of U.S. person queries. And those queries are not just done for the purpose of figuring out how those U.S. persons might be, what they might be saying to the foreign targets. That is not actually a limitation on U.S. person queries. So I think it's important here to talk about some of the queries that we have in fact seen, to put this into context, particularly against these examples of of spying on the weather underground, et cetera. When Congress last reauthorized Section 702 in early 2018, it added a provision requiring the FBI to obtain a warrant before accessing Americans' communications in a very small subset of criminal investigations. That's predicated criminal investigations unrelated to national security. And the reason this subset is so small is that the FBI usually performs U.S. person queries at the assessment stage of an investigation, which comes before the stage of predication. Anyway, according to a yearly statistical report issued by the government, this limited warrant requirement has been triggered roughly 100 times by the government's own admission. The FBI has never once complied with it. That's a 0% compliance rate with a statutory warrant requirement. So that's one set of abuses right there. For investigations outside of that narrow category, the FISA court approved a rule that allows backdoor searches if they are likely to yield foreign intelligence or evidence of a crime. Now, that's a pretty low standard compared with a probable cause showing. Nonetheless, according to the FISA court opinions released over the last three years, the FBI has engaged in, quote, widespread violations of that standard. And to name just a few examples that came out in these opinions, FBI agents searched for the communications of 133 Black Lives Matter protesters, more than 19,000 donors to a congressional campaign, multiple U.S. government officials, journalists, and political commentators, two members of the U.S. Congress, a state court judge who contacted the FBI to report civil rights violations by a local police chief, a local political party, and two Middle Eastern men who were reported to the FBI because a witness saw them loading cleaning supplies into a vehicle. You note that the FBI does have processes in place currently that they are supposed to undertake before any data set acquired under 702 can be queried. Why don't we lay down what these processes are? We already know they don't comply with them. You've said as much. Let's just break down what this is. First of all, what is a query in and of itself? We know this stuff, but people listening to this might not be super clear on exactly what that means. Yeah, that's a really good point. So a query is when the FBI or any other agency that has Section 702 data runs an electronic search of that data using a particular term that they are looking for. And a U.S. person query is a query where the term is associated with a U.S. person, perhaps as an identifier for a U.S. person. It might be their email address. It might be their phone number, something like that. It could be their name. 
that's what a U.S. person query is. Uh, and the FBI has always had procedures in place governing U.S. person queries, including various training requirements, access limitations, and oversight provisions. Uh, in fact, it's pretty notable that during a previous reauthorization cycle in 2017, the government came before Congress and emphasized repeatedly how robust and extensive those procedures were and how they were more than adequate to protect Americans' privacy. That obviously wasn't the case, which is very important to keep in mind when you hear the administration making those same claims now. Uh, but since the abuses that I mentioned earlier came to light, the FBI has made some adjustments to its procedures. First, it fleshed out its guidance to agents. It didn't change the substantive standard for queries. That standard is still reasonably likely to return foreign intelligence or evidence of crime. But its new training materials just explain in more detail what that standard means. The FBI has also created some new supervisory approval requirements. So agents need to get a lawyer's approval when they conduct batch queries involving 100 or more query terms. Batch queries are when agents bundle together multiple queries under a single justification. Agencies also need attorney or supervisory approval for certain sensitive categories of U.S. person queries. And finally, the FBI changed the way that queries run against FBI databases. So in the past, a U.S. person query would run against all of the data in the FBI's federated data sets. It would not just run against 702 data, and the agent would have to opt out of receiving 702 data, for instance, if their query didn't meet the standard for 702 queries. Now agents have to opt in to receiving 702 data. The point of these changes were to improve compliance with the FBI's standard for queries. That was the point. And even perfect compliance uh, with an internal rule that queries have to be reasonably likely to return foreign intelligence or evidence of a crime is no substitute for a judicial finding of probable cause. The Fourth Amendment doesn't permit warrantless searches if the government determines for itself that it has a good reason. But that said, these changes have not led to perfect compliance. The government says that its rate of non-compliance with querying rules has now gone down to somewhere between one and four percent. That might sound acceptable, but when you keep in mind how many of these queries the FBI performs, one to four percent of 200,000 still adds up to between 2,000 and 8,000 warrantless searches each year that violate the FBI's own low standard for conducting these searches. And those violations have already included some disturbing abuses. According to the latest FISA court opinion, after the FBI implemented its new procedures, agencies ran improper U.S. person queries aimed at a sitting U.S. senator. They ran improper queries aimed at a state senator. They ran queries aimed uh, at a state court judge who, as I mentioned earlier, had contacted the FBI to report civil rights violations by a local police chief. They didn't search for the police chief's communications. They searched for the judge's communications. So the FBI's new procedures are clearly not the answer. Okay, so two points. One, you talk about the FBI process and that it, it carries with it certain infirmities. What you didn't mention is that there were processes when this happened in the 60s and 70s um, when warrantless wiretaps happened in the 60s and 70s in that Robert Kennedy had to, who was then AG, had to approve these things. And apparently he did. 
Right. That's why we need warrants. It's not enough to have high level approval. You, you can still see abuses in those situations. You really want a neutral magistrate whose job is to balance the security rationale that's being offered with the civil liberties and the privacy concerns. Well, I, I, I think separately, though, I guess a question becomes, too, is this really more of a culture problem at the end of the day, if it's a problem? And I just wonder, because I think the statistics in terms of who's still entering the FBI and staying in the FBI may suggest that perhaps they need to undertake a little bit more sort of cultural shifts than they have heretofore. You do not believe that that would Oh, that would, these that would be great. No, I mean, I think that's so important. And I'm really glad that you flagged it. I think there are major cultural issues at stake or at play. And I absolutely would support measures to address those top down measures to really impose some real accountability for violations, for abuses, but also an expectation that civil rights are a part of what FBI officials need to keep foremost in their mind. It's not an afterthought. It's not an asterisk. It's not a box that gets checked. Now, at the end of the day, would that substitute for a warrant requirement? No. I mean, we have the Fourth Amendment because we know this. We have to hold the government to a certain standard and to certain protections. And the framers made that balance in the Fourth Amendment. They came up with the balance between liberty and security that made the most sense, that served all of those interests. So absolutely, cultural changes at FBI are badly, badly needed. I don't think in this particular case, uh, they can be a substitute for a warrant requirement. And I know we haven't really gotten into some of the constitutional issues around that. Um, it's something I'd be happy to discuss if you think it's worthwhile. I do think you should explain what the constitutional issues are around this, because again, and I would just focus on the language of the Fourth Amendment, which talks about unreasonable searches and seizures. Also, whether or not this is really unreasonable. Sure. What I want to start with is what we hear from administration officials all the time, that you know they, they are, have been repeating like a mantra that Every court to review Section 702 has found it to be constitutional. Note that they are not saying that every court to review warrantless U.S. person queries has found them to be constitutional. And there's a reason for that. Several courts have reviewed the constitutionality of incidental collection under 702. And those courts have all upheld it. So in other words, it doesn't violate the Fourth Amendment if in the course of collecting a foreigner's communications, the government happens to pick up Americans' communications with the foreigners. By contrast, very few courts other than the FISA court have even had the opportunity to review the constitutionality of U.S. person queries. And that's because the government refuses to disclose whether it's conducted a U.S. person query in any given case. Among the few courts that have been able to look at this specific question, there is a split. Four district court judges agreed with the government's argument that U.S. person queries do not trigger a separate Fourth Amendment analysis beyond the original collection, therefore there's no warrant requirement. But four appellate court judges rejected that argument and concluded that U.S. person queries must be subject to their own separate Fourth Amendment analysis. That analysis is currently being performed at the district court level, so we don't yet know what the outcome is. But what we do know, and this gets to your question, Alisa, is that the Supreme Court has been very clear that warrantless searches are per se unreasonable under the Fourth Amendment unless they fall within an established exception to the warrant requirement, such as consent 
or exigent circumstances. And so the bottom line here is that the constitutionality of warrantless U.S. person queries is anything but settled, despite how administration officials are, are trying to characterize it. And, and Congress gets to weigh in here. Congress can say, regardless of what the courts might end up deciding, we don't think warrantless searches of Americans' phone calls, emails, and text messages is acceptable. Then let's move on. Everything has changed topographically from the 1960s and the 1970s. Now there are IP anonymizers so that communications that would appear to be coming from overseas could actually be coming from the United States. There is a tendency for a lot of data to be harbored by these businesses called, broadly speaking, and I'm going to use your verbiage here, which is data brokers. But truth be told, we're all giving over a lot of information when we search for anything on Google. And a lot of that ends up as a Google ad ID in AdSense. There is a lot that is known by these private companies, and we're ceding that to these private companies right now. I'd like you to talk about some of the risks of acquisition from data brokers. And then I'd like to also play a little bit of devil's advocate here, because the information in the possession of data brokers can be purchased, and that's what the business model is. And it can be purchased from foreign governments through individuals who would appear to be legitimate, maybe even domestic businesses. So what is the problem with data brokers in terms of 702, in terms of the Constitution? And separately, how, if anything, does that play into Executive Order 12333, if it does? I guess let me start by explaining how I think those issues you mentioned tie in to the Section 702 reauthorization debate. If Congress limits itself to reforms that are within the four corners of Section 702 or even FISA, its reforms are going to have limited effect. And that's because Section 702 is part of a vast ecosystem of often overlapping surveillance authorities. And if one avenue of warrantless surveillance is cut off, the government will likely be able to migrate at least some of those activities to other authorities or exploit gaps in the law that enable warrantless surveillance without any statutory authorization whatsoever and with no judicial oversight. And that gets us to both data brokers and EO 12333. So first, data brokers. I think the best example that helps to contextualize what the problem here really is, is geolocation information. In 2018, the Supreme Court held that police officers need to get a warrant before obtaining a week's worth of cell phone location information from a cell phone company, because the information can be incredibly revealing. Uh, and even though the Fourth Amendment doesn't usually protect information that you voluntarily share with others, the court found that sharing your location information with your cell phone company isn't really voluntary in any meaningful sense of the word. Fast forward a couple of years, and we start seeing reports by investigative journalists that federal agencies have been buying access to entire databases of Americans' cell phone location information from data brokers without a warrant or any legal process at all. So how can that be squared with a decision in Carpenter? Well, government lawyers have opined that Carpenter only applies when the government compels disclosure of the data and when the government merely incentivizes disclosure by writing a big check, uh, the warrant requirement just goes away. 
There's also a statute that you might think would apply here, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, uh, which prohibits phone and internet companies from disclosing customer information to a government agency unless the government has a warrant or a court order or a subpoena, depending on the information in question. But that law is badly outdated. It doesn't apply to many types of app developers or to digital data brokers because these entities didn't exist in 1986 when the law was written. So companies that are legally barred from selling their data to the government can instead sell it to a data broker. And the broker can turn around and sell the exact same data to the government at a handsome profit. The data is basically laundered through a middleman. So that's the loophole that we're talking about. And there is broad bipartisan support in Congress for closing this loophole. The House Judiciary Committee just unanimously voted in favor of the Fourth Amendment is not for sale act. That's a bipartisan bill that would tackle a large piece of this problem. More broadly, as part of any reauthorization of Section 702, uh, what Congress should be doing is barring the government from purchasing any data that it would otherwise need a warrant or court order or a subpoena to obtain. So if Congress has said this information is private and the government needs a warrant to access it or a court order or a subpoena, the government should not be able to buy its way around those protections just because the laws are too old to, to mention data brokers. Okay. And I know you and I've talked before about Carpenter, which was a cell site case, not a geolocation, not satellite information. And in that, it was the theory of the government was the third party doctrine as it applied to using the cell phone. One thing that I know I've discussed with you before is I do think we are in different territory now. If you cede your location to TikTok, for example, and YouTube, and you can turn some of the stuff off. It's not hard to do. Many times you're given a prompt at the beginning that gives you the option of giving that data or not. And I think one of the concerns that I have when I listen to this argument is that we may be living in a new cultural understanding of what privacy is because we're giving out so much information and we have no idea where the developer of any one application that we're using on our iPhone might be located who's buying that data, that really times have changed as well in that privacy is not as expansive a concept as we once understood it because we're giving away so much of ourselves and we have no idea where it's going. It's not the third party doctrine. It's like a thousand third parties. So I wonder about that and how that might play into some of this in terms of expectations of privacy in the long term. And I also wonder what that might do ultimately to an understanding of privacy under Section 702 in the Fourth Amendment. What you are talking about in terms of people giving away so much data to so many third parties with no idea where that data is going or what's happening to it or how it's being used. I think that is all the more reason why Congress needs to step up and create privacy protections for this new era 
uh, in cases where this, the courts may or may not really recognize the significance, may or may not be willing to make even further inroads into the third party doctrine. I think that is absolutely right. And young people might be very sophisticated about how to use electronic devices, but I very much doubt that the average young person who downloads, you know, Candy Crush, or I'm probably way behind on that, some other game, understands let alone is consenting to the fact that they may be disclosing their race, their religion, their politics, their sexual orientation, their health status, that they may be disclosing that to law enforcement agencies, to the NSA. So this is a brave new world, and it is far past time that Congress step up and do something about it. Now, you mentioned something about foreign governments being able to access that information, and I feel like that's a really important thing to address there are bills in Congress to try to address that problem. Senator Wyden has a bill to address that problem specifically. Uh, some of the consumer data privacy bills that have been introduced, like the American Data Privacy and Protect Act, would also address that issue. And I really think Congress should be pursuing those. But I also don't see that as a reason not to protect America's privacy against intrusions by the U.S. government, right? I mean, we hold ourselves to a higher standard than China or Russia, and our government is bound by the Fourth Amendment, even though other countries are not. So, you know, this isn't a race to the bottom. Also, as a practical matter, the U.S. government has coercive powers over American citizens and people in this country that other governments don't have. The Chinese government you know, can't put someone in this country in jail or fine them or deport them or deny them benefits. So access to our data by foreign governments is a major issue and it needs to be addressed. But obviously that shouldn't be at the expense of protecting the rights that Americans have inside the United States. So sort of generally, I think there are two or three people in Congress who may understand what you're talking about in terms of the technology and the need for privacy but I think what you're saying is that it needs to be pretty comprehensive so that while these reforms that you're suggesting, and we'll get into some of the more nuance in a minute, that it should also prevent data brokers from selling this information to foreign governments or perhaps even make some sort of a know your customer requirement for these data brokers before they can begin selling these data sets probably would be a pretty good way to go. Do you have any concern that people in Congress, many of them simply don't understand these issues? Well, I mean, I think that's on us as advocates to try to educate them. I think they are interested and willing to listen. I think there's a huge appetite for dealing with some of these very, very complicated problems having to do with data and technology and privacy. And so I think it's incumbent upon people like myself and people who work in organizations like mine and, and people in academia and you know people who care about this issue and are looking to make progress to really reach out to members of Congress and have these conversations. Because yes, it is hard for anyone to, to keep up with some of the ways that new technologies interact with privacy and civil liberties concerns. It is a constant challenge. It's a challenge for me and it's what I do for a living. So absolutely, I think members of Congress need help and want help in understanding these issues. I'm not sure that I've drawn you out about what specific additional reforms you would like to see on 702. I did want to raise, and we discussed the issue of providing at least categorical data. Like if these queries are for the most part companies, then that should be separated, parsed, 
and made part of the reporting to Congress. Were there other specific reforms than the warrant that you're talking about? And if you want to put some gloss on that, when you talk about what you mean by a warrant, it sounds odious, but I think you're referring to something that is considerably less odious than may be apparent to any listener. Yeah, I really appreciate the question. What a lot of advocates are proposing, including myself, is that agencies, uh, before running a U.S. person query, should be required to go through the legal process that would be required if they were collecting that information in the first instance. And that won't always be a warrant. If an agency is querying communications content in a criminal or domestic national security investigation, that would be a warrant. If the agency is querying communications content in a foreign intelligence investigation, that would be a FISA Title I order. If it's querying communications metadata under current law, that would mean getting a court order based on the showing of relevance. The idea is that the government was able to avoid complying with these processes when collecting the information uh, based on its certification that it was only targeting foreigners. Once the government's focus shifts to a U.S. person, it shouldn't be able to sidestep those processes anymore. When it comes to the warrant requirement, all of the same exceptions that exist to warrant requirements in general would apply here. That includes the well-established exception for exigent circumstances. If there's an immediate threat to the life or safety of any person or people, that's an exception. And there's also an exception for consent by the person whose information is being searched, as we discussed. So that's really what, what we're talking about here. Would you allow for an exception if it is apparent that a company has been targeted and it meets the definition of providing critical infrastructure? And I'll give you some examples. And I like the ones that are included in 18 U.S.C. 2339B, but the financial system, financial institutions, the power grid, power companies, hospitals that may need data to care for patients. Do you think that if it's apparent that that's what's going on, that that would present the kind of exigency? Would you agree with that? It depends on the circumstances. I mean, if lives are in the balance, then yes, that would qualify under exigent circumstances. Uh, but if not, those to me sound like cases where consent would absolutely be a very useful and fruitful uh, way to pursue the situation if you have hospitals that are going to lose sensitive data about their patients. Those hospitals, they're going to cooperate. So I think, again, we have to go back to the fact that domestic law enforcement agencies do this work on a daily basis, and they have to protect victims as well. And those may not be victims of a foreign attack. They may be victims of a domestic attack, uh, but they still have to do it. They do it frequently, and they do it using methods that comply with the Fourth Amendment. It is possible. It's done all the time. You know, I think it's also important to point out that despite ample opportunity and incentive, the administration has only been able to identify a handful of instances in which U.S. person queries were even useful. And when you look at those examples, none of them demonstrates that a warrant requirement would create problems. In each case, it appears that the government either could have gotten a warrant because a crime had clearly occurred, for instance, the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack, or the government could have obtained the consent of the person being queried, for instance, when certain high-level government officials were ostensible targets of an assassination plot. So, you know, the, the evidence that, that U.S. person queries in particular 
are vital to national security. It just isn't there. I'm not talking about the usefulness of 702 in general. I think the government has put forward a lot of examples there. But when it comes to the actual need for warrantless U.S. person queries, uh, the record is uh, notably thin. Okay. Well, I think DNI has pushed back. And what they have said is that you can't get consent if the purpose of this query is to identify what institution or what individual is the victim. And I think therein lies one of the vulnerabilities of this consent exception. And I don't know how you would style that if you're trying to figure out which hospital or which grid is about to be attacked or which individuals who may be about to travel will be assassinated when they arrive in a foreign country. If you don't know who that is, would you allow that some sort of a search should be permitted just to identify who might be targeted? Well, again, if you have probable cause that some kind of foreign plot is unraveling, that can support a search for potential victims' communications. If you don't have probable cause, you're in a consent a situation where you would be looking for consent, and companies can consent to searches. That happens. I mean, again, go back to the normal criminal context. There are cases in which a company has to give consent. There are ways to do this, and the FBI is very versed in how those ways work. And it may be that they don't know yet who the victim is. They're trying to figure it out. They know enough to enter the U.S. person queries. So just take those same identities that you are entering in as queries, and instead of running a query, reach out to that person or persons to say, we have some reason to think that you might be the victim of something pretty serious or the target of something pretty serious. We need your consent. That is the way the Fourth Amendment envisions this. As I said earlier, there is no victim exception to the Fourth Amendment. But I think in terms of data that could be provided or additional information that could be provided to Congress at some point of reporting, understanding when victims were trying to be identified through some process, victims of a hack, victims of a potential attack, just to figure out who the individual was, would you think that parsing that, just like parsing whether it's a company or an individual, would also be a helpful data point? Any data point is helpful. I mean, <laughs> one of the, seriously, I mean, the transparency and FISA court opinions that resulted from the law that Congress passed in 2015 has been invaluable, not because it has fixed the problems, but because we now know what the problems are and we can talk in a meaningful and educated way about what reforms should look like. So absolutely, I'm always in favor of more data and more information being provided to Congress and to the public. All right. Now, you as a person who has, you know, inhabited this civil liberties space for a long time, when you look out at the world right now and you see these extreme topographical changes to our global communications and these massive changes, do you feel that the challenges to reframing and reconsidering civil liberties need to be undertaken by people with expertise? And do you think that the next generation of civil liberties attorneys will need to have greater understanding of digital connectivity code and other aspects? I imagine there are a lot of young lawyers who would be listening to this, who would look at somebody like you and say, I aspire to do what she is doing. What do I need to bring to the table in the future as the world keeps changing with these you know, large language models, AI, and inevitably quantum computing. 
Yes, absolutely. As we generate more and more data as the means of not only obtaining that data, but deriving personal information from that data get more and more sophisticated, it gets much harder both to identify and explain where the civil liberties risks lie and to ensure that the right legal guardrails are in place. And it's always been true that the law lags behind technology. But when you look at the exponential increase in just the speed of technological development, you can reach a point where by the time the problems and risks become apparent, the technology is already so ingrained in how our government works and how our society works that can be really hard to walk it back. Um, as you say, we're seeing this now with artificial intelligence. There are enormous privacy and civil liberties implications to AI. The government is certainly using AI when it processes Section 702 data, most likely in ways that directly impact Americans' privacy, although all of that is still redacted in the FISA court's opinion, so we don't know enough to, to respond. But yeah, I mean, the pace of technological development is, well, it's a huge argument for privacy by design, right? Making sure that the privacy implications are thought through at the time new technologies are developed and that safeguards are incorporated both into the technology and the law at that time. And that is way easier said and done. And yes, in order to effectively fight for that result, civil liberties attorneys are going to need much greater technological literacy than we've had in the past. So yeah, budding civil liberties lawyers do not neglect your computer science classes. Now, I know you wanted to talk about 12333. So in closing, one of the questions that I've always had and others I've heard express is why isn't, you know, querying these databases already covered by EO 12333? And it might be good to say what 12333 says. Right. There is a geographical limitation on FISA's reach. For the most part, FISA, including Section 702, applies when the government collects information inside the United States or from U.S. companies. When the government operates overseas, it normally relies on a claim of inherent constitutional authority, uh, regulated only by executive order and policy. And the most notable executive order is EO 12333, which governs foreign intelligence collection that isn't otherwise governed by statute. This geographical distinction, in my view, is an anachronism. It's a holdover from 1978 when FISA was passed. At the time, domestic surveillance usually meant surveillance of Americans, and overseas surveillance usually meant surveillance of foreigners. But today, that's obviously not the case. Digital communications are rooted and stored all over the world, regardless of where the actual people who are communicating might live. And in fact, the fact that foreigners' communications were being rooted and stored inside the United States, thus forcing the government to get a probable cause order to collect them under FISA, is one of the main reasons the government sought to modernize FISA through the enactment of 702 in 2008. But 702 failed to address the flip side of this problem, namely Americans' communications and other sensitive data are often rooted and stored overseas in ways that can, in some cases, remove them from the protections of FISA and expose them to surveillance under EO 12333. That is a particular risk when the government engages in bulk collection, which is sort of a dragnet approach in which the government is not identifying particular targets. Uh, bulk collection is prohibited under 702, but it's permitted under EO 12333. 
Moreover, even when 12333 surveillance is targeted at specific foreigners, you know, rather than used to conduct bulk collection, it still results in the incidental collection of Americans' communications, just like seven, Section 702. And yet, protections for this data are left entirely to executive branch policies. And as inadequate as the protections of Section 702 have proven to be, the protections agencies have adopted under EO 12333 are even weaker. In particular, it is much easier for the CIA or the FBI to conduct a U.S. person query under EO 12333 rules than under Section 702. Just as a general rule, EO 12333 rules are more permissive and less protective of Americans' privacy than Section 702. They're not non-existent, but they are weaker. And there's just no justification for giving weaker protections to Americans' constitutional rights based on the accident of where our digital data happens to travel. So to complete the modernization of FISA that began with Section 702, Congress should be extending basic protections to Americans' communications and other Fourth Amendment protected information, regardless of where they are obtained. And at a minimum, that means imposing a warrant requirement for U.S. person queries under EO 12333. With that, I'll say thank you very much for joining us this evening and sharing your views on FISA reform privacy generally. We got in a lot more, I think, than you probably expected. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And some of the infirmities that you observed in 12333. So, you know, be careful what you wish for. If uh, 702 goes by the wayside and uh, somehow people take an expansive view of 12333, we may be wishing for FISA 702 right back. There you go. Or at least for the (laughs) opportunity to make reforms. All right. Well, let's see what Congress does. They get along really well right now. They're not going to shut the government down. They're all going to talk to each other and behave like adults. I No comment on, on that with the government shutdown, but I will say that surveillance reform is one of those areas, one of those few areas where conservatives and progressives seem to actually be on the same page. So this is someplace where, you know, something good might actually get done. Well, thank you for joining us, and we'll look forward to talking to you again in the future. My guest tonight has been Liza Goitin, Senior Director of the Brennan Center's Justices, Liberty, and National Security Program. We will hyperlink to Liza's full bio, which is very impressive and involves some time working for somebody on the Hill named Russ Feingold, who we've also had on the podcast and who was a delight. And her recent foreign affairs article. I would note that this is behind a paywall. Apologies for that. You ought to subscribe to it anyway. No offense. I would encourage you to go ahead and Google her, find some of her other articles. Everything that she writes is very good and you'll probably enjoy reading it, particularly if you're interested in working in the area of civil liberties and privacy. Thanks for listening, and we invite you to subscribe, like, and rate us on your listening app of choice. Share this episode with a friend and have an intelligent conversation about national security and the laws that govern us. You can find us on Twitter or X, ugh, really, as well as other platforms, and where you can always find us under the handle at ABA NatSec. Have thoughts you want to share with us? You can reach us at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. Our producer and writer is me, Elisa Poteet, always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salido is our program manager. My other producer is Holly McMahon, along with the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thanks for listening. Hey, listeners. 
This conversation topic will continue during our annual review of the Field of National Security Law Conference this November 16th and 17th. All conference and program details, including registration, can be found linked in this episode description. On the morning of November 17th, Professor Laura Donahue will moderate the panel titled The Future of Section 702. Don't miss this and many more of our national security law panels. Join us and be a part of the conversation. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.